Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for joining our live stream broadcast. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be our teacher, bringing to our understanding the things you have written for our learning, giving us grace to apply them into our lives. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask you to bless it now. In Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And while you're doing that, let me just uh, refresh your memory. We have entered into the second major section uh, of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Now, as we said last time, when Christians think of the book of Revelation, they immediately think of chapters 6 through 19, which uh, contains all the cataclysmic judgments that God is going to bring shortly, I believe, upon this wicked, Christ-rejecting world. But uh, as I tried to point out last time, uh, those chapters have nothing to do with Christians living right now during the church age. Uh, we are in the church age, and uh, I believe that the rapture is going to happen before these uh, events of chapters 6 through 19 begin to take place. So I am pre-trib. I believe that, uh, again, that uh, the rapture will happen pre-tribulation period. And after we're evacuated off of this earth, then God's judgment will be poured out. Of course, the Holy Spirit will be very active during the tribulation period, bringing millions upon millions to Christ. The Antichrist will uh, persecute and uh, murder many of them, but the church will be up in heaven, I guess, having a balcony seat to what's happening on the earth during that period. So again, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, in these chapters, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, again, let me ask once again, why these seven churches when there were others that were more important, larger churches that Jesus could have addressed letters to, Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, and so on? Well, it was because these seven churches contained conditions that could be applied both spiritually and practically, allowing Jesus to use them to address his church as a whole throughout the entire history of the church age uh, in a way that would be beneficial for its purity and its growth going forward. So let me uh, repeat this one last time uh, to set up the study. These seven churches, first of all, had a local application. Uh, these were seven real churches that existed at the time these letters were written, first century. And... Um, as the Lord addressed them to these seven churches, they were kind of a report card uh, to show each of them how they were doing in his sight. So they had a local application. They also had an historic application. These seven churches, in a symbolic way, uh, speak to the different periods of church history from the apostolic period, the first century, to the rapture, which is the close, uh, will be the close of the church age, and therefore, the order that they appear in chapters 2 and 3 are significant, uh, as we'll see as we go through these. Number three, they have a timeless application. They speak to all churches in all ages and in all places throughout the world, each church having its own you know, distinctive character. Uh, for example, Ephesus, the loveless church, Smyrna, the persecuted church, Pergamus, the compromising church, Thyatira, the idolatrous church, Sardis, the dead church, Philadelphia, the faithful church, and then Laodicea, the apostate church. And then number four, they have a personal application, these seven letters do. We, we are the church of Jesus Christ, not the building the church meets in, you know that. And as such, these letters are a, a kind of a mirror, a mirror that every Christian should look into from time to time and, you know, use to examine uh, our own individual walk uh, in relationship with the Lord. How are we doing personally? All right. Is our walk with him loveless? Is it compromising? Is it dead? Is it faithful? Etc. You You understand, all right? Now, last week, we looked at the first letter Jesus dictated, the letter to the church of Ephesus. Um, that church was serving the Lord, as we saw, to the point of exhaustion. 
but he had one thing against them. They had left their first love, which we defined as honeymoon love. The church, uh, that church symbolically represents the first century Christian church, which was generally praiseworthy, but at, what, at one point became, I don't know, kind of mechanical uh, in its service. Uh, it was going through eventually just the motions, but it lost the emotion in their service for the Lord. So it was kind of mechanical, and Jesus said, I will not, uh, I don't tolerate uh, mechanical service. I want love. I want everything to be done for me out of a loving heart. And so we studied that last time. And guys, that brings us to the second letter that Jesus dictated, the letter to the church of Smyrna, which was the persecuted church. Now, this letter is only four verses long. It's kind of a postcard, <laughs> not really a letter, but uh, I think it's significant that to the church suffering the most, Jesus said the least. That's a good lesson for all of us to learn when uh, we're ministering to those who are suffering. Uh, be there to show you care. Uh, say as little as possible. Be sensitive. And above all, or, uh, and, and, and help with practical things like meals and chores or child care errands. This is how you can really help somebody that's going through a grieving time and so on. And above all, fight the urge to preach or give pious platitudes. The last thing a Christian needs to hear when they've lost somebody very dear to them is, well, now you know, all things work together for good. Those who love the Lord, they know that. They know that. You don't need to say that. Just be quiet. Be there. If they need you to run out and get them something or do something for them, do it. Uh, but just by virtue of you being there and just being quiet, you're a silent strength to them. And remember this, guys, whenever we suffer, for whatever reason, at that point we can choose to fight and complain, fight God and complain against the Lord, or we can submit and learn. In other words, we can choose to allow the suffering to make us bitter or better. And so verse 8 and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right. Now, as we have already pointed out, the name of each church is significant, is significant. The word Smyrna means myrrh. Myrrh was a bitter substance. Uh, the city of Smyrna was actually named after myrrh, which was one of its principal products that it commercially produced and shipped to different places. So, it was known for this, myrrh, so much so that the, the name of the city uh, was derived from the word myrrh, Smyrna, all right? Uh, if you don't know this, myrrh is a resin that comes from the dried up sap of the um, uh, camophora tree, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, camophora, camifera tree. Uh, the theme of this letter is suffering and death, which is fitting because myrrh was used to bury the dead. It was uh, wrapped into the windings, uh, which, you know, it had a, a, a fragrant, um, a pleasant fragrance to it that staved off the stench of death. So they would wind it into the windings of the grave clothes before somebody was buried. But also myrrh was used to make perfume for the living, though so not just to bury the dead, but as a perfume for the living. The thing about myrrh was the fragrance could only be released from the myrrh if it was crushed. It had to be crushed. It's interesting because the church at Smyrna was being crushed by persecution. But uh, that allowed them to give off the fragrance of Christ. What do I mean? Well, they were faithful to God. They were a witness uh, in their suffering. One author put it this way, something I quote, At Smyrna, unlike Ephesus, there was no waning of love for Jesus Christ. Because the believers at Smyrna loved him, they remained faithful to him. Because of that faithfulness, they were hated. Because they were hated, they were persecuted. That persecution, in turn, incited them to love Christ more. And I will add, and by it, they continued to give off the fragrance of Christ. The more they were persecuted, crushed under their adversities, the more they gave off that beautiful aroma of Christ. 
Also, myrrh was one of the three gifts that was given to Jesus after his birth. The others were gold and frankincense. The gold spoke of his kingship, the frankincense of his priesthood, and the myrrh of his death. Now, it's interesting, we read in the scriptures that during the millennial kingdom, people that come to Jerusalem to pay homage to the king, Jesus Christ, will bring gifts of gold and frankincense, but no myrrh. Well, the gold speaks of his kinship. He will be king. The myrrh, the frankincense of his of his priesthood. He will be our great high priest, but no myrrh because his death is behind him. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 18, he said, I was the one who was alive, and then I was dead, and now I am alive forevermore. So he will never die again. So in the millennial kingdom, gifts of gold and frankincense, but no myrrh, his death is behind him forever. Let's take a minute to look at the city of Smyrna, because all this fit, fits into the um, context, okay? So uh, Smyrna was an ancient city that some believe could have been settled as early as 3000 BC. Uh, historians tell us that the first Greek settlement definitely dates back to 1000 AD. Around 600, excuse me, I'm sorry, the first settlement uh, the Greek settlement dates from about 1000 B.C. Around 600 B.C., Smyrna was destroyed by the Lydians, and it lay in ruins for the next three centuries um, until two of Alexander the Great's successors rebuilt the city in 290 B.C., and of course, that would have been the Smyrna that the Apostle John would uh, have known. Uh, although Ephesus and Pergamus equaled or surpassed it in political and economic importance, Smyrna was said to be the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. It was located on, uh, on uh, the Gulf of the Aegean Sea, and unlike Ephesus, which lay 35 miles to the south of Smyrna, it was blessed with an excellent harbor. In addition to the natural beauty of its surroundings, the city was well-designed from what I have read. Uh, it stretched up from the bay, up the, the slopes of, the Mount, of Mount Pagus, uh, a, which was a large hill covered with temples and other um, public buildings. And uh, so the, kind of the city was kind of built around this Mount Pagus. Um, the streets were well laid out, and the outlying streets were all lined with groves of trees. Smyrna's most famous street, called the Street of Gold, curved around the slopes of Mount Pagus. Uh, at the one end of Mount Pagus was the uh, Temple of uh, Kibbele, who was a, a, a nature goddess. In fact, she was called the mother of all gods. And uh, on the other side of Mount Pagus lay the Temple of Zeus. In between were temples, uh, the temples of Apollo, Escalapius, who was the god of medicine, and Aphrodite, who was the goddess of fertility. Smyrna was noted, uh, was a noted center of science and medicine. It was also one of uh, several cities that claimed to be, to be the birthplace of the, of the poet Homer. Unlike Ephesus, which eventually became uninhabited, Smyrna survived several earthquakes and fires and exists today as the Turkish city of Izmir, with a population of several hundred thousand, one-third of which are Christians. Now, I went online and checked out the city of Izmir, ancient Smyrna, and I have to tell you, it is quite beautiful. Check it out. All right, verse 8 again, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came back to life. Now, Jesus begins each of these letters with a title of himself taken from the vision that John saw of him in chapter 1. And each of these titles that he grabs, uh, little pieces of the vision from chapter 1, each of the titles he grabs to apply to these individual churches sets the tone and the mood of each letter. He calls himself the first and the last, as we saw when we studied chapter 1. Uh, that speaks of his eternal character. Jesus uh, his eternal character, of course, being uh, God in human form. Uh, he has always existed. He had no beginning and will have no end. In fact, the first and the last, as we studied, were specific titles that belong only to Yahweh. Yahweh, according to Isaiah 41, verse 4, 
44, verse 6, and Isaiah 48, verse 12. Jesus said, I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Now you have to understand how important that statement was to a church that was going through severe persecution and many of its members were being in the Christian community were being killed for their faith. Uh, what a great thing for Jesus to say. Remember me, I'm God, first and last. He said, I was dead and came back to life. And it reminds the Christians in Smyrna that they serve the Lord who was risen, who has risen victorious over death, that death could not hold him, and because it could not hold him, it would not be able to hold his followers. Jesus said in John 14, verse 19, because I live, you will live also. Because I conquered death, death won't be able to hold you either, and uh, you will be resurrected someday to live with me forever in my kingdom. Now guys, remember that these seven churches, in a symbolic way, speak to different periods of church history from the apostolic period, first century, all the way to the rapture, which is going to be the close of the church age. Smyrna symbolically represents the period of church history from the first to the fourth century, uh, where the church suffered persecution under various Roman emperors. Time of great persecution, and Smyrna embodies that. Uh, in verse 9, Jesus gives them a commendation. He said, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Twice in this verse, Jesus says to this suffering, persecuted church, that had lost so many loved ones, I know, I know. There have been times over the course of my ministry where I have had to try and comfort those who had lost loved ones, maybe a spouse or a child. And, and you know, folks, I do my best. I've never lost a spouse or a child. And people appreciate me trying to comfort them. But then somebody enters the room who has lost a spouse or a child, and this person falls into that person's arms, and the person grieving sobs just uncontrollably, and the other person just hugs them and says, I know, I know, because they have been through it. They have been through it. And I, I just see here as Jesus is talking to this persecuted church that has lost so many loved ones um, because of their faith. I just see Jesus with his arms around this church saying to them, I know. I know what you're going through. I too was persecuted. I too tasted death. But it's not the end. I, uh, I was dead and I rose to live again just like your loved ones will someday rise and live again also. You know, Jesus is constantly encouraging his people. You know, suffering and death are just a, a part of life. And um, he knows what we're going through. Never forget that. He knows exactly what we're going through. He knows our suffering and our pain. He isn't blind to the things that are happening to us. And he will often send a believer to us who has gone through some of the, the pain and heartache we are currently experiencing. And they wrap their arms around us, men with men, women with women, and, and they just you know, give us a big hug and say, look, I know what you're going through. I, I've been there. Uh, Jesus loves you. Let's, let's pray together. Let's, let me just do whatever I can to, to help you and to encourage you and so on. Um, the body of Christ, you know, is, is the arms of Jesus who uh, we wrap those arms around each other when we're hurting. And especially if you've been there, which is the whole definition of ministry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Paul said, you know, we comfort others with the same comfort we ourselves were comforted of God when we went through similar things, and God allows us to go through these trials and tribulations so that after He comforts us, we can go and comfort others who are themselves going through those same kind of adversities and sufferings. Jesus goes on and says, I know your works, tribulation, and poverty, but you are rich. 
The tribulation in verse 9 isn't talking about the great tribulation, of course, but the tribulation that all Christians suffer for their faith, especially those who are living in very hostile countries towards Christianity like China, India, Africa, etc. I just read this yesterday. I just read this yesterday. Let me read it to you. It says, The persecution of Christians in India is on the rise with a report of one believer being murdered for his faith by Hindu radicals in his own village. According to Christian Solidarity Worldwide, or CSW, Kande Mudu, 27, age 27, was attacked and martyred, or murdered by a group of armed men in, Kunti, in the Kunti district of India's Jakard state on June 7th. He had converted to Christianity four years ago. Moody's family were the only Christians living in their village. They had faced threats to their lives and had survived one violent attack on their home two years earlier. Moody was killed when the mob showed up at his house, broke down the front door, and attacked him with weapons. During the brutal attack, his throat was cut. Bindi Mudu, Kande's wife, told CSW, After hearing the men at the front door, my husband knew that our lives were in danger and that the men had bad intentions. Mudu then reportedly told his wife we, he might be killed, but assured her to, and I'm quoting him, remain strong and never give up her faith in Jesus, even if they killed him, end quote, which they did. And it just reminds me how our brothers and sisters in Christ in these very volatile areas of the world that uh, it, it's uh, a constant danger. Every day you wake up thinking this might be your last day on earth uh, because you're living in a, a, a country or a, a town that is very antagonistic towards Christianity. And so uh, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted for their faith. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, He said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And then Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This is just what it means to be a Christian. We are blessed to live in a nation that has religious freedom, but uh, that may change soon. Uh, I think that Christianity is fast becoming um, something that is being looked at in a very negative light. Uh, and so uh, now uh, one of the leaders of the Black Lives Matter protests, in fact, there's just violent uh, attacks on our uh, our country, have now said, this one person said, now it's time to start uh, turning our attention to churches and to the stained glass windows of the, uh, of the Western Jesus, you know, the European Western Jesus, uh, which is just a symbol of white uh, racism and so on, and it's just getting crazier and crazier. So uh, we might be soon living in a country where uh, there is real persecution against against the people of God, and we need to pray right now that God would give us grace, like He gave the Christians in Smyrna grace, to endure, to pray for our enemies, and uh, to represent Jesus in a way that will honor Him and bring Him glory. Now, guys, one thing we can take from these seven letters is that each church had a wrong view of themselves, just like many individual Christians have a wrong view of themselves. Some of these churches thought they were better than they were. Others thought they were worse than they were. It's kind of how it works. I've seen many wonderful Christians who are always putting themselves down because they just don't feel they're living properly for the Lord. And then you got proud, arrogant, worldly, carnal Christians who always think they're the best thing the church has ever seen. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. I want to read you something Paul said on this subject. First Corinthians 4, starting with verse 3. Paul said, But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I know nothing against myself. I don't 
know of any crime I've committed or uh, anything I've done wrong against the Lord, but it doesn't matter, uh, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. It, it, it's only Jesus' opinion of us that matters. Uh, Paul said, look, I, I don't you know think too highly of myself. I try not to put myself down. Uh, I'm not the best judge of my own ministry. I, I just commit everything to the Lord. Someday we're going to stand before the Lord, and He is going to make everything clear. And He's going to show us whether we were uh, we were uh, uh, led a, a good Christian life or a carnal Christian life. But if you are a Christian, you will be going to heaven. But it's the issue is rewards. But uh, Paul says, you know, try not to be too hard on yourself. Uh, try not to always be praising yourself. Commit yourself to the Lord and do your best to walk humbly before your God. But guys, here the church of Smyrna thought they were failures. This happens a lot. I've seen many wonderful Christians who think that they're not a good example of Christianity. And the church of Smyrna thought they were failures. But Jesus saw them as a great success. Interesting. They thought they were poor. But Jesus said in the eyes of God they were very rich, rich in faith and in heavenly rewards. That would be in contrast to the church of Laodicea, who thought they were so wonderful. They were a very wealthy church, as we're going to see in a few weeks. Uh, but Jesus saw, and they thought they were just the best church in the whole world. And Jesus said to them, you know, you think you're wonderful, you think you're rich and need nothing, but you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, completely oblivious to what Jesus saw going on in their church. He saw them as a mess, a great failure when they thought themselves a great success. The word poverty, as Jesus talks of this church, the word poverty in the Greek means abject poverty. Abject poverty. Totally destitute is the idea. Why? What was going on that they were so poor? Well, you see, back then, every guild, what was a guild? It was, uh, the guilds were the forerunners of our trade unions, all right? And back then, every guild had its own patron god or goddess in the Greek pantheon of gods that they worshipped and relied upon for good, for good fortune, all right? It was their patron god or goddess, all right? And as such, they would begin each day with a pledge of allegiance to that particular deity, but of course, the Christians wouldn't participate. They wouldn't pledge loyalty to a pagan deity. And so they couldn't be a member of the guild, which meant they couldn't work. And that was why they were so impoverished. Listen, their faith was not what was not so weak that they be that they were a poor. Uh, just the opposite. Their faith was so strong, which is why they were poor. They refused to uh, to give in to the pressure. Uh, you know, a lot of Christians today would say something like, well, I got to work. God knows my heart. I would never really be loyal to a pagan deity, but I'm just going to mouth the words because I got to work and provide for my family. Well, you know, God didn't see it that way. God saw this church as they were standing up for him, standing up for their faith. They were not going to mouth the words, even though uh, if they did, they would not have meant th that they were pledging allegiance to another god or goddess. Um, but God wanted them to be a witness, and they were. And uh, it may, meant that they were very poor, but God took care of them. No, they were not, uh, they didn't have everything they wanted, but they had everything they needed. God saw to that. And it's just a um, testimony to us. Um, when, if things get really tough, are we going to buckle? Are we going to say, well, in Rome, do what the Romans do? Are we going to stand for Jesus? And even if it means financial ruin, uh, physical persecution, the time is coming that we are going to be tested, I believe. And um, I want you to notice something, though, before we move on, uh, that even though they were a poor church, Jesus didn't rebuke them for their poverty. And even though they were a suffering church, Jesus didn't condemn them like uh, a lot of televangelists and pastors would have today. You know, Jesus doesn't say here, 
I know your poverty. It shouldn't be. I know your suffering. Shame on you. Where's your faith? It's just interesting how backwards things are today. The very qualities that caused the Lord to praise this church would be the very qualities that would cause many modern televangelists and pastors to put down this church. I mean, if you're right with God, you're not going to be poor. If you're right with God, you're not going to be suffering. When in reality, that was it was because they were so right with God and their faith was so strong that they were going through poverty, uh, experiencing poverty and suffering. It's important how backwards things have become today. Read your Bible. Don't listen to the guy on TV uh, where you get your theology. You make sure you read your Bible. Because often what's being taught today is 180 degrees opposite what, of what God really says in His Word. Verse 9. Once again, the Lord says, I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews, and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. You have to understand that in the early years of the church, first century, uh, much of the persecution it faced was from Jews who saw Christianity as a cult, a cult that claimed to be the fulfillment of Judaism, and that really irked the Jews, that this cult had the audacity to say they were the fulfillment of Judaism. It was true, but these unbelieving Jews would never would accept that. And so it, because it didn't sit well with them, they saw it as their mission to wipe out this cult. Now, at one point, Saul of Tarsus was originally one of these Jewish antagonists. He believed Christianity was a cult, and it was his uh, responsibility as a faithful Jew to stomp them out, to persecute them and get rid of them, until God met him on the road to Damascus, and he had a dramatic conversion experience himself. But um, it's interesting that they went around constantly charging uh, Christians to the Roman government uh, all kinds of, of false charges uh, that they constantly made against Christians to the Romans. And uh, some of them were, uh, uh, just a few of them, uh, they, these unbelieving Jews commonly accused Christians of cannibalism. Why? Because they misunderstood the Lord's Supper where we eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. Well, not literally, but they heard those words and thought, oh, they're cannibals. And they reported the church to Rome. They uh, claimed that Christianity or Christians were uh, very immoral people. Why? Well, it was based on a perversion of what Paul and others said, greet each other with a holy kiss. That'd be kissing the cheek in that culture. That was a sign of friendship and a warm greeting. But uh, the enemies of Christianity picked up on that and said that, uh, that, uh, that Christians were immoral people going around kissing each other, right? Um, they accused Christians of breaking up homes. They were homewreckers. Well, what, what, where did that come from? Well, because when one person got saved in a marriage, it brought a lot of conflict and tension, sometimes even ending the marriage. We believe that Saul of Tarsus was himself married at one time because he was a member of the Sanhedrin. You had to be married to be one of the members of the Sanhedrin. And that when uh, when Saul got converted, uh, one of the uh, le legitimate legal ways a wife, a Jewish wife, could divorce her husband, he could divorce her for almost any reason, but one of the legitimate uh, ways or uh, ways by which she might divorce him is if he left the faith, which, of course, Paul did. He became a Christian. Uh, and left Judaism, or actually became a completed Jew, as we say, all right? Um, so Paul probably was married before this, and uh, his own marriage broke up because he became a Christian. That was the charge, that, uh, that uh, Christianity broke up homes. Uh, also, that uh, the Christians were atheists. Well, what does that mean? Well, it just simply meant they didn't believe in all the pantheon of Greek gods and goddesses. They didn't believe in all the pagan deities. We would call them pagan deities, right? And, uh, but in reality, they were true believers in the one and only true and living God, of course, the God of the Bible. And then finally, and there are other things, I mean, um, I remember one pastor saying that, <clears throat> that um, unbelievers accused, uh, Jewish unbelievers accused Christians of aborting their children, putting them in bottles, the dead fetus in a bottle, 
and burying it in the walls of their house for good luck. Of course, that was absolutely untrue, but that's why a Jew uh, must never set foot in a Gentile uh, house, especially a Christian Gentile home, because they would be defiled with all these uh, dead baby bodies. I'm sorry to even bring it up, but a lot of things that were being said against uh, the church, that was not true. And one of them was that the uh, the church, or Christians in particular, or, or in, uh, in, uh, in person, were uh, disloyal uh, and rebellious towards the Roman emperors. Now, here, here's what this charge was all about. Rome was very polytheistic. They didn't really care. They didn't care who you worshipped, okay? As long as every year, every Roman citizen was required to stand in front of a bust of Caesar with a small fire burning in front of it and take a pinch of incense and put it into the fire before the bust of Caesar and mouth these words, Kaiser Kurios, which means Caesar is Lord. And they could worship anybody you wanted. Well, the Christians wouldn't do that. They only had one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they refused. And that meant that Rome persecuted them and even killed them, saw them as very disloyal uh, to the empire and uh, brought a lot of suspicion upon this group of, of people, the Christian church. Look, there was a large Jewish population in Smyrna. And some of the wealthy, influential Jews reported all of these false accusations to the Roman government, and this unleashed a wave of persecution against the church there in Smyrna and in other places. But Jesus called these haters of the gospel, these unbelieving Jews, he called them a synagogue of Satan. In other words, they saw themselves as a synagogue of God, doing the work of God and destroying Christianity, but in reality they were actually a synagogue of Satan, doing the work of the devil against the true and living God. You know, Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 8, you are of your father the devil. He nails them, all right? You think you're working for God? You think you're so holy? You are working for the devil against the purposes of God. He later on said in John 16, now this is uh, just hours from the cross as he's giving his disciples one last teaching, briefing before the cross. But he said to them in John 16 verse 2, there is coming a time when those who kill you will think they are serving God. Now he's talking to his disciples who are Christians saying that there is coming a time when those who kill you will actually think they're serving God. Folks, do you realize that more Christians have been killed over the centuries by people that claim to be working for God than any other group, more than communists or um, atheists by far? More Christians have been killed by people who claim to represent God than by any other group, first by the Jews in the first century, then by the Roman Catholic Church that slaughtered millions and millions of true believers, and now today by the followers of Islam. Persecution of the church at Smyrna reached its climax 50 years after this letter with the execution of the aged Bishop Polycarp, who, who was at one time a disciple of John the Apostle. But uh, he was uh, put to death uh, by the Romans at the, uh, at the uh, encouraging, uh, very much so, of unbelieving Jews who played a major role in seeing Polycarp put to death. Let me read to you this. Uh, the author says, history, history records the death of Polycarp after he was arrested and brought into the stadium in Smyrna. Now, he was the leader of the church of Smyrna. He was the bishop, which means overseer. That's all it means. Uh, he oversaw the various churches in Smyrna. There was no doubt a bunch of them. It was a big city. Uh, but he was the overseer, the bishop. And so he was a very godly man. And so the article goes on. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Respect to thy old age, you're an old man. What do you want to die like this for? And other similar things, according to their customs, such as, Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Away with the atheists. In other words, just you give your allegiance to Caesar. You can worship anyone you want after that. 
renounce the atheists. I mean, renounce Christianity, okay, is what he was saying, this proconsul, this executioner, all right? And um, say, you know, uh, respect thy, thy age and, and swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say away with the atheists, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ, Polycarp declared. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul then said to him, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast thee, except thou repent. But he answered, Call them then, for we are not accustomed to repent for what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil uh, to what is righteous. But again the, again the proconsul said to him, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, saying that thou despisest the wild beasts if thou don't, do not repent. Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire that burns only for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what thy will. So I'm not afraid of a fire that burns for a few minutes and it's over. Uh, you ought to be afraid of the fire that burns forever that you're going to be cast into if you don't repent and come to Christ. But, you know, uh, having said that, uh, you know, uh, what are you waiting for? Uh, bring it on. Bring it. I'm ready to die, basically, okay? This, then, was, uh, was carried into effect with greater speed then it was spoken, then it was spoken, multitudes immediately gathering together wood and sticks out of the shops and baths. The Jews especially, I want you to see that, the Jews especially were gathering wood for the fire to burn a polycarp. They were just giddy because they thought they were doing the work of God and destroying this uh, cult leader, as they thought of him. Uh, the Jews, especially according to custom, eagerly assisted them in the gathering of wood. And when the funeral pile was ready, Polycarp went willingly to the stake. They did not na uh, nail him, but simply bound him. And he placing his hands behind him and being bound like a distinguished ram taken out of a great flock for sacrifice and prepared to be an acceptable burnt offering unto God, he looked up to heaven and he prayed. And I will read the whole prayer to you, but he thanked God for counting him worthy to die as a martyr for the cause of Christ. Very godly man. Very godly man. Now when he had pronounced his amen and so finished his prayer, those who were appointed for the purpose kindled the fire, and as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we, these are eyewitnesses now recounting what happened, uh, as, the, as the flame blazed forth in great fury, we to whom it was given to witness it beheld a great miracle and have been preserved. We've, we've been, God's allowed us to stay alive this long to tell you the story uh, and have been preserved that we might report to others what then took place. For the fire shaping itself into the form of an arch like the sail of a ship when filled with the wind, encompassed as by a circle the body of the martyr. So it didn't just burn him, it just kind of circled around him, all right? And he appeared within the flame, uh, not like flesh which is burnt, but as bread that is baked, or as gold and silver glowing in a furnace. Moreover, we perceive such a sweet odor coming from the wood and the fire, like frankincense, they said, or some other such precious spice uh, as, that, as if it had been smoking there. At length, when those wicked men perceived that his body could not be consumed by the fire, they commanded an executioner to go near and pierce him through with a dagger. And, uh, and uh, on his doing this, there came forth a dove, and a great quantity of blood, so that the fire was extinguished. And all the people wondered that there should be such a difference between unbelievers and the elect. In other words, when they saw what was going on here, how calm Polycarp was in facing death, how he actually rejoiced in being able to be a martyr for Christ. And then they lit the funeral, uh, the, the, um, uh, the fire to burn his body, and it kind of went around him, and he started glowing. Uh, you know, not flesh burnt, but uh, like a, a beautiful glow. 
And then they said, well, we can't kill him with the fire. Stick a knife in him. And immediately a dove flew out uh, of his body. And so much blood came out, it quenched the fire. And this caused everyone to wonder, what is this? We've never seen anything like this. The death of a Christian is miraculously different from the death of anyone else. And this brought many to Christ. In Polycarp's death, he was used by the Lord that many came to Jesus because of this miracle that took place. Guys, it has been said that the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. The more the devil tries to kill and does kill Christians, God uses it to bring more and more people to Christ. It's an amazing thing. Now, as I said last week, these seven letters follow a particular pattern or structure. And at this point, there is usually a condemnation followed by a correction. However, the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia are missing these, uh, indicating that, while not perfect, I'm, they were not perfect churches, I know that, um, while not perfect, Jesus acknowledges, acknowledges that they were not guilty of anything worthy of condemnation or correction. And so in place of the condemnation and correction, Jesus chooses rather to offer up to the church of Smyrna an exhortation. Verse 10, the Lord Jesus said, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown, or give you the crown of life. Jesus said, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Do not fear in the Greek is more literally, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. These Christians in Smyrna were afraid. And you say, well, how could they be? They had great faith. I mean, doesn't that preclude the reality of, of fear? I don't believe that. I think sometimes even the strongest Christians can become fearful. Look, they were human beings. They weren't robots. Uh, I think any Christian, I mean, uh, pretty much any Christian, when facing physical persecution uh, and death, is going to be afraid. But we draw our strength from the Lord. It's like, um, I've used this illustration before with regard to soldiers on the battlefield. The difference between a soldier that's, that has courage and one that does not is not in the sense that uh, a, a, a soldier with courage never fears. It's just that he or she doesn't let those fears control them, and they quickly suppress them and keep their eye on, uh, you know, on the, on the task in front of them, which is to fight and win. You know, I, I don't believe that, um, you know, I, I believe that a true Christian, a, a strong Christian uh, in their faith, um, is going to experience fear at times, especially if we're facing at some point in our nation's history physical persecution uh, and even death. Um, fear is going to come upon us at times, but in those times we need to push it aside, look to God to be our strength, and just move forward. Just move forward. And God will give us the grace, I believe, like he gave Polycarp. I believe that Polycarp's faith was something that God at that moment strengthened. I believe that God gave to this man great peace. Uh, it was a supernatural peace that the Holy Spirit gave him at that moment to die as a martyr and bring God glory. I pray that if I have ever have to die for my Lord, that God will give me the grace to do it with a courage and in a way that will bring my Lord honor. And I pray that for all of us, if we ever have to face death for the cause of Christ. So stop being afraid, Jesus said. I'm here. Um, don't fear death. I'm with you, okay? And death is going to be momentary. I mean, uh, dying is momentary. And then it will yield to you an everlasting kingdom of joy and peace and so on. But he goes on. He tells them, don't be afraid. Stop being afraid, okay? Uh, the devil is about to throw some of you in. I love the way the Lord doesn't sugarcoat it, okay? I love the way he doesn't give them false hope, all right? That's going to be fine, okay? No, no. He tells them straight out, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. This persecution, Jesus tells us, was of the devil. Was of the devil. 
The question is, if that's true, and we know it is, Jesus said it was of the devil, the question is, why couldn't these Christians in Smyrna just rebuke the devil and bind Satan so that he wouldn't oppress them or persecute them? I mean, isn't that what people are being taught in Word of Faith churches? That you just have to speak the word and bind the enemy and, and, uh, and, uh, and with your words drive him from you? These Christians couldn't, quote-unquote, bind Satan because God had, God had a purpose in their suffering. First of all, to purify them. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Next, to make them like Jesus. Romans 8, verse 17. And thirdly, that they would be a witness. Revelation 12, verse 10. So God had a purpose in it. In that regard... God allowed Satan. I know it sounds strange that God would allow Satan to get at me. Well, only if it served God's purposes for our lives as it did in the lives of these saints back then, the the church in Smyrna, that God allowed Satan to persecute these Christians for a time because it served his purpose, his purposes for their lives, most specifically in this case. It was so that they might be tested. And as they were tested, they would come forth as gold, that their witness would shine. Um, that's the purpose of trials, to, to test us, to purify us, right? Uh, to make our faith more precious than gold when it's tested by fire and the impurities are released, and so on. Uh, trials, tribulations, persecutions for the cause of Christ test our faith. Those that are not really committed, they run for the door, all right? Uh, fair-weather Christians who have been promised wealth and uh, success in their businesses. When persecution comes, they think God has lied to them and they head for the door. Good riddance. If they're not saved, we don't want them in the church. But those of us who are true, these trials are going to temper our faith, make it, you know, like when uh, metal is subjected to fire, it's tempered, it's made stronger. That's how the faith is for those who are true believers when we are facing uh, tribulation and persecution. Uh, God wanted to use this, that their faith would be tested, that uh, it would be proven uh, genuine through this suffering. In other words, that God would use the physical persecution to display the true riches of the church in Smyrna to everyone, that everyone would see it. Um, That this was a church that, you know, their riches were not treasures on earth. Their riches were treasures in heaven, and that's what they lived for. And uh, worldly carnal carnal people um, who live for material things know how shallow their lives really are. And yet they see people who are willing to die for something, uh, in our case for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, wow, Uh, I'm not even happy with all my money to live. And here these folks are happy to die. Uh, That's a powerful witness and it brings many people to Christ and has over the centuries. Again, the seed of the uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and uh, so God was testing them, and e- and even testing them in a, to a point of showing them what was in their hearts. Sometimes I don't even know what's in my heart. Would I really stick it out for Christ, or 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 be willing to be martyred in, in a way that would honor Him? I, I the only way I'm going to know is if I face that situation. I I hope I would be, but it would all be God's grace. All right. So he was testing these people, not only that they would be a witness to the world, but that they would know themselves. Look, they thought they were failures. Jesus said, no, look at your faith. Look at how it's being tested and how you're shining. No, no, you're not a, you're not failures. You're, you're a great success. You're not a poor church. In my eyes, you're very wealthy. You're very rich. You have great rewards in heaven waiting for you. He says, don't be afraid. The devil's about to throw some of you in prison. And you will have tribulation ten days. Ten. Da- There's much been much debate regarding the meaning of you know those words ten days. You're going to have persecution, tribulation, ten days. Is John really speaking literally here of ten days of persecution, or is he speaking figuratively ten periods of persecution? Is he talking of ten emperors 
that ruled during 10 periods. Is that what he's talking about? It's true that in the first three centuries of the, of the church, there were 10 Roman emperors who severely persecuted the church, killing between 5 and 7 million Christians. Amazing time of persecution. Uh, first three centuries, uh, the church was subjected to 10 Roman emperors who severely persecuted the church. Is that what John has in mind here, symbolically? Well, some believe that's what he's got in mind. However, the first of these emperors would be would have been Nero, who reigned from 64 to 68 AD. Uh, he can't be one of the 10, if we're talking about 10 emperors. Uh, Nero reigned 64 to 68 AD. Jesus didn't even dictate this letter to John until 95 AD, and then said the persecution was yet future. So um, that argument doesn't really hold up. And um, some have suggested that uh, the 10 days is a Hebrew idiom that speaks of something being cut off or limited in duration. Uh, hang in there. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison. You're going to be uh, persecuted for 10 days, or in other words, uh, for a period of time. But I'm going to keep it limited. I'm, I'm going to cut it off so it doesn't go on too long. Well, that's possible. I, I think... Personally, it's probably just best to take these 10 days literally. Uh, as author Mark Hitchcock encourages us to do, he said, and I quote, It is preferable to interpret the 10 days of tribulation as a reference to a literal 10-day period of brief, intense trial that the believers in Smyrna were going to suffer. The trial would be intense, but God in His grace would limit it to 10 days. When we face trials, we can receive comfort from this passage. While we do not know in advance how long a trial will last, we can rest assured that the entire length of the trial is under God's sovereign control, end quote. You know, guys, I once read how a pastor asked the adult in his small group to give him, you know, to share with the group their favorite verse on the subject of suffering. All right, you've been in the small groups, you're in a circle, you know. And so the pastor said, well, you know, I'd like to hear your favorite verse or verses on the subject of suffering. And so they began to go around in a circle. And um, uh, it came to one woman, uh, and when it came to her, she said that her favorite verse on the subject of suffering was, it came to pass. It came to pass. The pastor was puzzled by this and asked the woman how, these, how those words applied to suffering. She enthusiastically responded, Well, pastor, whenever I go through a time of suffering, I just remind myself, it didn't come to stay, it came to pass. Well, the pastor said, oh, Praise God, uh, let's all thank our dear sister for reminding us that whenever we go through a time of suffering, it didn't come to stay, it came to pass. Well, I think Peter put it a little differently. Why don't you turn to 1 Peter 5? Not that that was a bad answer. I Praise God. I mean, she's right. But in 1 Peter 5, one of the classic passages on this very subject is uh, 1 Peter 5, starting with verse 6, where Peter said, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care, all your worldly anxieties upon him, for he cares about you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world, around the world. Christians are being persecuted, suffering all over the place. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, he keeps, you know, he keeps, somebody said he keeps his hand on one hand on the thermostat and his eye on the clock. 
He only turns up the persecution for a short time, all the while he's got it all under control, right? Uh, after the Lord has allowed you to suffer for a while, know this, he will to perfect to perfect you and establish you and strengthen you, he will end the uh, suffering, the persecution, because he knows we can't go on indefinitely without being completely destroyed by it. So after you've suffered a while, uh, uh, he said, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Look, let me close by saying this. Last uh, week, Cindy and I had the privilege of going to a pastors and wives uh, huddle, a little conference out in Indiana. And uh, I was asked to speak uh, one of the sessions at this uh, pastors and wives gathering. And um, I told them, it's, and it, these were all Calvary folks. We've all been raised with, prop, we all know prophecy, okay? But um, I said to them that it seems as we look at the various prophetic signs coming to pass all around us and the current events taking place, it looks that like Jesus Christ is coming back very soon. Now, I realize we've been saying that for a long time. But I honestly believe if you listen hard enough, uh, you're going to hear the footsteps of the bridegroom coming for his bride. And I posed the question to the pastors and wives, and I'll pose it to you. So if that's true, what's left? What's left? Well, just one thing, that we finish well. The title of that message, Finishing Well. Guys, I said to them, and I'll say to you, we are in the home stretch. I'm convinced of that. Some people say, yeah, Jesus is coming back. Maybe a thousand years. Uh, I don't think it's, it might not even be a thousand seconds, okay? I believe he's coming back very soon. I think we are in the home stretch. I think the, the finish line has come into sight. And now more than ever before, we must stay focused and determined by God's grace that we not stumble or fall away that we not do something stupid and cause years of faithful service to be brought down through, you know, scandal or through a momentary lapse in judgment. As somebody has said, it takes 30 years to build a ministry and it takes 30 minutes or less to tear it down. I believe we are in the home stretch, and therefore we must stay the course, as Pastor Chuck used to famously say, stay the course. We must finish well, or, and I'll end with this, something that Vance Havner, the old Baptist preacher, used to say, we need to get home before dark. Now, that came out of his childhood, that idea. He said that he grew up in the South. I forgot it was South Carolina, I think it was, and uh, uh, his, uh, his house was at the base of the Appalachian Mountains, gorgeous area, okay? And um, he said, in the summer, we had all these great things to do. You know, we, we, we would go climbing trees or we would swim in the pond. It was beautiful. And my folks were good about letting us just do what we wanted to do. But they only had one rule, that we, that we made it home before dark. And as he got older and began to serve the Lord, he always remembered that, never forgot it. And he applied it spiritually to his ministry and life for the Lord. He prayed, Lord, I pray that all the years that you've allowed me to serve you, that by your grace I not do anything before you take me home uh, to bring reproach on your name, that all the years of walking in the light, that I don't stumble in the darkness, uh, that I don't make it home before dark, that I don't make it to your, into your house before I do something that will destroy all the years of faithful ministry. And it doesn't take much for a minister to bring reproach. Any Christian who's in ministry, we're, we're all in ministry. You could serve the Lord faithfully for years and years and years, and yet one, one sin um, can bring it all down and bring reproach on the name of Christ. And he said, Lord, I, 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 my biggest fear is that after serving you for all these years that I, I won't make it home before dark. 
And Lord, give me grace. Well, he did make it home before dark. He never had any scandal or a sin that um, destroyed, uh, you know, um, his uh, ministry for the Lord, you know, and brought reproach on the name of Christ. It never happened with him. And I pray it never happens with me or my loved ones or you. But we have to... See, he was... It was in his mind. Uh, it was something he always thought about. He, he was always on guard that the devil was going to try to do something uh, to, uh, to stumble him and take him out of the race. I remember one time years ago, a pastor who was just starting out uh, received a call to uh, go to a person in the church's house. It was a, a, a real problem going on. So he was young in the, in, the, in the ministry and didn't really exercise the best judgment. And so he goes to this house, knocks on the door, and a woman opens the door in a, in a bathrobe and opens it up, and she had no clothes on. He just ran for the hills like Joseph, just took off. He went on to have a very successful ministry for the Lord. I'm talking a church of many thousands of people went all over the world preaching the gospel. And he said, at a pastor's conference I was at years ago, he said, if I would have given in to that temptation, my life would have never turned out for the Lord the way it has. And so keep that constantly on your mind, that at any moment the devil is going to try to use something, someone, to stumble you to not only destroy your marriage, but to destroy your walk and your ministry for him. So may God give us grace to keep our eyes on Jesus. The finish line is in front of us. Don't look to the right or left, look straight ahead so that you run all the way into Jesus' arms and hear him say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Father, we thank you for your grace. It's only by your grace that we can live for you and hopefully, Lord, someday die for you if need be. But Lord, we pray that as we are in these last days now and the, and the enemy is ramping up his attacks and his temptations, that Lord, you would counter with uh, extra grace poured upon us, Lord, that we would keep uh, strong in our walk and faithful in our ministries, Lord, that we will keep our eyes on you and not look at anything the enemy would dangle in front of us to stumble us and take us uh, out of the race so that we don't finish uh, well. So we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We keep giving you these studies in your word and ask you to bless and keep uh, using them for your glory. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great evening.